All right, well, this week, as we continue what it means to reach for hope, to look in life and, and want to know that there's more, that, that there is hope for the future, that there is hope for the present, this week we're going to talk about the hope of worship. Because we are made to worship. Amen? It is hardwired into us, and we're going to worship. Whether we admit it or not, we are going to worship. The question isn't if we're going to worship, it's what we are going to worship. And if what we are worshiping is worthy of worship. Because if it's not, if we are worshiping something less than God then the hope that we receive from that will be easily shaken. The hope that we seem to find will be fleeting. It will be passing. Even if everything works out perfectly, if we are worshiping something of the world, it will still, it will still fade over time. God is the only one worthy of our worship. And because he is worthy, that means he is eternal. That means the, the reward of worshiping him is also eternal. It means he is infinite so that there is always something new to worship. There's always some way to worship him which draws us closer to him. And, and we will never run out. And even if it is consistently thanking him and, and returning to one theme of thanks for what he has done for us at the cross, that's enough. Because of what the cross means. And so this week, we're going to look at Psalm 40, at what it means to, to worship. This is a, a beautiful psalm of worship to God. And we're going to look at what constitutes true worship. Because that can be confusing at times. We've seen in the past the worship wars, you know, is it, is it worship if, if we have a drum set on stage? You know, I've been places where they're like, oh no, you don't do that. Can't be worship then. It can only be worship if there's a piano and an organ. And that's all we provide. That's it. Or it can only be worship if there are no instruments involved. Or it can only be worship if there's smoke and lights and it reaches the emotions and, and causes a person to really feel it inside. What is true worship? And how do we know we've engaged in that worship? Is it up to our feelings? No. So today we're going to look at what Psalm 40 has to tell us about what true worship is. So read with me now, Psalm 40. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. 
but you have given me an ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Now I know that's a lot, but worship is powerful. And when we really look at worship, this is a moment of worship for the psalmist. The one who wrote this, his life is in turmoil, and yet he sees the greatness of God, and God has even acted in the past and, and has rescued him before. And so he knows his way, so he's, he is spilling out his heart right now, praising God for who God is, for what God has done, and also for what he's going to do, while not ignoring the reality of his current situation. This is worship. And so what we see here is first, worship is personal. I don't want you to miss that because it's, you know, when the worship wars really started, and some of you remember that, you know, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, as the, uh, the, the worship wars started and there was this split between contemporary and traditional and, you know, it, it seemed like it was almost a, a battle between the impersonal and the personal, the objective and the subjective. And there was a group that wanted the objective all the time. There's a group that wanted the subjective all the time. And you know what worship does? It includes both. And we see the psalmist here begins with not so much subjective, but the personal. What has happened in his life? How has God impacted him? He begins his praise by recounting the goodness of God in his own life. So listen again what he says in verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Worship always celebrates what God has done for us personally. It always does. We can't help it. When we encounter 
the, 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 the God of creation personally, and he works within our heart, and he works in our lives, we're going to have a testimony. And that testimony is the thing we want to tell. And we're hardwired to do it. We want to speak of the great things in our life. Amen? We, we just do. It's natural. We see it from childhood on when something wonderful happens to us or, or something amazing. What do we want to do immediately? We want to find somebody and tell them. You know, it reminds me of the guy who went fishing, called in sick to work, and caught the biggest fish he'd ever caught. And he couldn't tell anyone. He couldn't post it on social media, couldn't do anything because he called in sick. He was supposed to be homesick. You see, we want to share these things. And so here the psalmist is remembering when God changed his life. Now, we don't get the details of this, but the imagery gets to the heart of the matter. He called on God, waited patiently. God heard him and drew him up from what he calls the pit of destruction. Now, some of you in here have that testimony. All who have put their trust in Jesus Christ ultimately have that testimony. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we all have an eternity in the pit of destruction waiting on us. But those who have put their trust in the Lord, what has he done? He has renewed our hearts. He has renewed our minds. He has lifted us out of that place of sin and set our feet on the rock. And so he called on God. God lifted him up. The psalmist was stuck in life. He was stuck in his own destruction, in his own sins. He was stuck in a place without foundation and without direction, but God changed it. And he is celebrating that. Now, does he live in the past? No, this isn't the entirety of his worship. But it is a foundation of his worship that I have a personal knowledge and experience of what God has done. And he speaks of his personal experience. So let me ask you, what is your testimony to God's goodness in your life? Can you bring it to mind? If, if somebody wanted to know, what has God done for you? How excited would you get to be able to tell them? Oh, sit down. Have a seat because we're going to talk for because God has been good to me. Here's what he has done. You see, that's what the psalmist is here. He's excited about God, but it, this is deeply personal. But he doesn't just say, hey, yeah, he saved me from the bad things. What else does he say? He says, he put my feet on the rock. He gave me direction. And I love this. It says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. He put a new song in my mouth. What does that represent? It represents a changed heart. The song we sing in life, our life song, reflects who we are, where we're at, the direction we're headed. And we get a new song. That means that everything has changed. And we are celebrating new things in life. We're going a new direction in life. We have something different within us now that shows itself in a new way. So I want to ask, what is your new song? Have you ever thought about that? What is your new song? If you had to say, this was my old song, and this is my new song, how are they different? 
What difference has God made? How do you praise God for what he has done in your life? You see, this is where I think we have substituted the power of worship for the fleeting fun of entertainment. Or even in churches, I like to call it worshiptainment. Because we chase a feeling so much that we're not thinking about the concrete realities of the spiritual life that we're leading and, and where it's going and what it's, what's happened and the enormity of what God has actually done in our hearts. And so sometimes we're happy just because, hey, Paul played my favorite song, so it was a good day of worship. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are songs that I absolutely love. There are songs that I will, I will listen to, and my family can fully attest to this, listen to till everybody in the world is like, please, stop. <laughs> just stop. No more. But... God brought me to a place where I understand that's just me. That doesn't mean that I've worshipped. That just means I'm enjoying something. Worship is that new song that declares the goodness of God. The, the influence and the power of God in our lives. What is your new song? See, the new song the psalmist talks about is a song of praise for him personally. It's a personal expression of gratitude, praise, confession, that his life is now the result of God's work. The new song is now the theme to his life. And this is more than expressing feelings. Feelings are involved. This doesn't have to be stoic. But don't let the feelings be the final arbiter of what is true. Your feelings will be involved, and they should be involved, because we can't love God with all our heart without our feelings being involved. But that's just one aspect of it. This is an expression of fact about what God has done. And worship celebrates what God has done and not just God, how God makes us feel. Which makes it possible to worship God when we're at the lowest See, I've had people tell me, I just, I can't worship God right now because I don't feel it. So, no, you need to worship God right now because of how you feel. Worship is right and good. When we are at the low point of life, to still be able to turn to God and say, look, this truth of who God is and what he has done is bigger than this moment, despite how hard it is for me. There's more going on. And so what I think has some, that, that's happened is the worship wars that happened between contemporary, traditional, all this stuff that went on for years, I honestly think that it has cheapened worship. And it's made it a subjective thing where if I don't feel a certain way, then I can't worship. And it's amazing the spillover that that has then. Because if, if I get to choose what worship is, well then, what stops me from choosing what is good theology? What gets me, to, what stops me from just choosing, hey, this is the God I want to worship and I, I think he's like this. 
You see, there has to be an objective standard at some point that we come back to. There has to be a true north in worship, in life, in belief, and it is what God has given us in the word. You see, they cheapened worship by pitting tradition against new, traditional against contemporary, focusing on the way we feel instead of focusing on what God has actually done in our lives. And, and the two are worlds apart because when we focus on what God has done in our lives, we have to get outside ourselves and say, you know what? God has still been good to me. I may be in a difficult spot, but I can look at my life and say, you know what? God, 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 God. Okay, this is a hard moment and I can't see God right now, but I'm certain, and we're going to get to this in this psalm, I'm certain that in the future I'm going to look back and say, and God. I can't see it now, but I know it'll happen. And, and so the songs we sing should be celebrating what God has done and not just to create a feeling. Now listen, there's nothing that, that I or Paul can do to change that in your heart. There is nothing, okay? It's not about song choice. It's not about anything like that. It's about finding a way to worship. It's about focusing on the truth and offering ourselves to God and offering God the worship due his name. Which means, are there styles of music I, I enjoy better? Yes. Can I worship him equally to any style of music? Yes. I don't need anything but the truth to worship God. And all of us, we got to get to a point in our lives where we, can, where we can differentiate that. And say, you know what? This is about worship. This isn't about me right now. This is about worship. And so my personal preferences have to go to the side. And I got to focus on God. And I got to focus on the truth. And that is what that new theme, that new song is about in our lives. Because the new theme is prominent in Scripture. New directions, new goals, new hopes, new joys, new identity, new life. God doesn't just want to put a Band-Aid over a wound or sweep something on the rug. He wants to transform it, heal it, redeem it, and use it for his glory. And worship will always be a part of that. It will always be a part of that. And so I want you to think in Scripture. Abraham, the fatherless, became a father to a nation. You think he had a new song? Look at what God did for me. I'm 100 years old and have a child. He's talking about it. He's praising God about it. David, the shepherd boy, became king. Peter, the fisherman, became a fisher of men. Paul, the persecutor, became the preacher. And they all praised God for what he had done in their lives. And all acknowledged, this wasn't me. I didn't do this. God did. And that's where the psalmist says, he took me from the pit of destruction and set my feet upon the rock. He made that change for me. And here's one of the great things, is worship always and must be personal. It, it has to be personal. And when it is, when it speaks of God's greatness in our lives, God will use it to reach others. Our worship will ultimately serve an evangelistic purpose. Did you know that? 
your worship of God, your genuine, truthful worship of God in spirit and in truth will reach other people. Yes, true worship leads to evangelism because what is evangelism other than basically taking the worship of Jesus where it currently isn't happening? That's what, that's what evangelism is. And what does the psalmist say in verse, verse 3? He says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He says, I will sing of his greatness. I will praise him and people will see it and they'll come to know him. Now notice he didn't say I'll make a spectacle of myself. He didn't say they're going to come to me. What did he say? He says, they'll see the difference this worship makes in my life. They will know that it's God that I serve and they'll want that for themselves. And they too will go to God. Why will they put their trust in the Lord upon hearing our worship? Because our worship will be personal, but it will also express the truth, spirit and truth. Worship doesn't stop with our personal involvement with God. It moves to a new place and declares the highest truths that are there. See, he doesn't just stop. It doesn't stop after verse 3. You notice there was a whole lot more to this. There's 17 verses in, in 40. The first three are personal. The rest of it moves to the, to, to the other parts of life, the other parts of truth. Because worship declares the highest truths. Listen again to what he says in verses 4 through 10. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. What he just said is there's an endless supply of worship here. I will always have something to talk about. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. You see, he moves from his own experience to the universal truths of God that are true for everybody. You see, not everybody in that moment could say, he has set my feet on the rock. They may still be in the pit of destruction. So they're like, I don't understand this, what you're talking about. I would love it. I just don't know it yet because I don't know this. But what does he do? He moves to the universal truths of God, which he's telling them, if you want that to be true, here's what you do. If you want your feet on the rock, here's how it happens. You put your trust in God. You see, worship is and always will be personal, but for it to be effective, it must move beyond the personal. So it's, it's kind of strange to say, but yes, we have to celebrate what God has done for us, but we can't just stay there. We've got to get outside ourselves and worship then and thank him for what he's done for us, praise him for it, acknowledge it, and then say, you know what, but there's a whole bigger world of spiritual truth out there than just what I have experienced. And I've got to acknowledge that. Because we are worshiping the God of creation, not just the God of feelings. Amen. We are worshiping the infinite 
all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, holy God, and our worship must reflect that. Otherwise, we are worshiping a creation of our own heart, which is idolatry. We have to move into the deepest, highest truths of God. And so what does he say? He said, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and pursues eternal truth instead of worldly lies. God is available to all. The one who chooses to pursue God is blessed. Now, this is pursuing God, not a feeling, not just the blessings, not just the power, not just his influence, not just personal development, but God himself. He says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, that he puts his hope and trust in God himself. He says, that's where you find your blessing. And then second, he says, God has acted in miraculous and wondrous ways towards us. And he has, all of us. Maybe we didn't get the miracle we wanted, but we got the miracle we needed. And maybe that miracle was in not giving us what we wanted. Maybe that miracle was in him barring that door shut that we were convinced had to be opened so that we could learn to trust in him. Now, of course, the foremost wondrous and miraculous way that he has worked for us is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are in a privileged position today to worship because we, got to, we, we get to look back and see the apex of God's intervention for man. We can take all of the miracles of the Old Testament, the wonderful miracles of, of God parting the Red Sea, the wonderful miracles of God providing manna for the people. The wonderful miracles of, of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. And they all pale in comparison to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, died a sacrificial death, and was raised back to life on the third day in resurrection power. And all who put their trust in that benefit. And so we have a reason to thank God, to worship him for what he has done. Because even though we all, like sheep, have gone astray, God sent his son to die for us so that we could once again be in a relationship with him. And then we find in verses 6 through 8 that God, we see what he wants in worship. He wants the heart. This is where the worship wars again were stupid. Because all it did was reveal hearts on both sides of the argument. You see, it, we, we've been conditioned so much in our stories and our media and our, our TV and everything else to, to think that when there are two sides, you know, there's a good guy and a bad guy, right? You ever realize that sometimes both sides are just wrong? Everybody can be wrong. Nobody, it, it is possible in a, in a situation that no given person's actually right. It's just a bunch of people who are wrong arguing about the wrong thing. And the more we understand that, the less we start trying to kind of pigeonhole certain people into like, oh, I, you know, I, I, they're good and they're, they're not. You know what? We could all be wrong. And when we pause to think about that, it gives us a new perspective. Because God wants the heart in worship. And when we tell God, what, well, I can only worship like this, what are we telling him? My preferences are more important than his truth. Mm-mm. Not going to, doesn't work. And God will reject that worship. Yeah. 
And so God wants the heart. Listen to what he says again in verses 6 through 8 because this is so important. It says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. See, the greatest thing the psalmist has learned in this is that in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. He has realized that God wants more than lifeless ritual. We can all go through the motions. We can even lift our hands. It doesn't mean we're worshiping. He says, I want the heart. God desires the heart. And when the heart is truly given to God, then one can say, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. You see, nobody's having to force him. He wants to follow God. He loves God. He wants to glorify him. And so I believe today there are two types of false worship that offend the Lord. One's easy to find. The other, not as much. One is idolatry. And the second is empty ritual. And in the Old Testament, Israel was guilty of both. At times, they worship the pagan idol Baal. And we all see that when we read through the Old Testament. Oh, they're worshiping Baal again, and it's clearly bad and evil. But you know, there are times that they continue to offer sacrifices, and they weren't worshiping Baal. And you know what God said? He goes, I'm weary with your offerings. I don't care about your sacrifices. I want your obedience. Because Israel would just had a nonchalant attitude about sin and we're just going to do what we want, but it's okay because we have the temple and we can make a sacrifice and I'll just make a sacrifice and I'll be forgiven and then we'll just do the same thing over again today, uh, tomorrow. And, and God finally said, that's enough. I am so sick of this. He says, I don't want your, I don't need your sacrifice. I want your heart. And you know what? God got so tired of it at their, not, at their unwillingness to be heartbroken for their sin, to follow God with a whole heart and to love him, he got so sick of that. You know what he did? He destroyed the temple and he sent them into captivity so that they could learn, I am your God, not your temple, not your religion, not your land. I am the one you worship. See, those are the links that God will go to to claim our heart. And you think God's going to change now that we have even better access to worship him? You think he's going to tolerate empty ritual today when he's given us his spirit? No. God hasn't changed. And so everything that he did in the Old Testament, we look at it and say, you know what? A form of that could come on me today if my heart isn't right with God. He could do the exact same thing. And so... It's in that context of God destroying the temple, of, of God sending them into captivity or warning them that it's coming. It hadn't happened yet, but it's, he's telling them it's happening. That he tells them in Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Amen. And what he's telling them basically is, yes, I'm destroying your temple. I'm destroying your homes. I'm destroying your nation. I'm going to send you into captivity. And at some point during that captivity, you're finally going to figure this out. I'm not going to answer you during the battle. 
I'm not going to answer you when this is ugly. I'm not going to answer you when they're enslaving you and taking you off to Babylon. But when you get there and you live in misery, sometime in about 70 years, you're going to figure this out and you're going to start seeking me and you'll do it with your whole heart. You know what? You'll find me. I will be there. God desires the heart and knows when we give him less. And then fourth and true worth it, testify to his deliverance and salvation. We testify to who he is. That's why all of our songs, we, we come back to the gospel. We come back to God. Great are you. You know, how great is God? I mean, how many of our songs say those same things. We talk about Jesus' birth. We talk about Jesus being God. We talk about God being love. We talk about God's greatness and his forgiveness because this is who he is. And it should never get old. This is something we should be able to talk about among ourselves and, and celebrate together as the people of God. And not to do so is sin. You see, that's one of the things the psalmist here, he's, he's about to get into, look, I still got sin. And he's like, I, I still am a messed up human being. But I love that he says here in verse 9, he says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. He's like, I haven't kept quiet about you. I'm, I got 99 problems, but this isn't one. I am telling people about you. I am singing about your greatness, and I am declaring your greatness in the great congregation among the people. And I love this because he's like, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. He's saying, I, I am not guilty of this particular sin. Now, what's amazing is he goes on later and he's like, oh, my sins outnumber my hairs. He's not pretending that he's better than he is, but he's like, but I at least got this figured out. And that's in many ways what the spiritual life is about. We're never going to arrive. Okay, you perfectionists out there, just accept it. You're not going to arrive in this lifetime. You will always be imperfect. You will always need grace. You will always have to rely on him the same way now that you did the day you got saved. It will never change. But you will grow and mature. And those things that you know, you can know you know for sure. And you may be the same thing. You say, look, I got problems, but I have figured this out. I'm at least here. I know that I got to ask forgiveness for my sins and confess it to them if I want to move forward, so I will do that. I know that I'm supposed to sing his praises and give him praise, so I will do that. Doesn't make me better than anybody else, just helps me be closer to God. And I will do it. You see, because this is where the higher things of God meet your life and it all becomes worship. Your life becomes worship. Your words become worship. And as we walk in worship like this, something amazing happens and that is that worship brings faith into the moment. Whatever you're facing, good or bad, 
The worship of God, the true worship of God, brings that faith right into the now. It's not just about the past, and it's not just about the future. It's also about right now. How are we walking with God right now? Because you know what? That's all we have. I will celebrate the past and talk about what God has done for me. But past faithfulness doesn't mean present obedience. And I will praise God and thank Him that I have a hope for the future. But we're not there yet. So I still got to deal with the present. And how I'm following God in the present speaks more to my faith than either of those other, the past or the, the future. And so the psalmist moves into that, into his hope. He starts to express his hope for worship. And listen to what he says. He says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. This is truthfulness in worship. You know you can be truthful with God when you worship. You don't have to pretend that you're okay if you're not okay. You know why? Because God knows you're not okay. And to trust him in worship with that shows that we have a deeper trust of him. Because God's not just about the good times. He's about the bad times too. He's there for everything. And we can admit that. And so he says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Notice in worship, what is he doing? He's praying against his enemies. You know why? Because he believes vengeance is the Lord's. Now, does that seem unloving? You see, I think we've got to change our view of God a little bit. Because here, he's like, hey, God, there are people that are just bad people. They aren't following you, and they aren't listening to you, and they are messing with me, and I want you to deal with them. But I want you to deal with them. There is a huge difference there in putting our trust in God, you deal with them, and saying, God, let me deal with them. We'll get it wrong. We always will get it wrong. Okay? You know how I know we'll get it wrong? Because in the Old Testament, God had to say, he actually had to say, hey, in your justice system, an eye for an eye. Don't let it go any further than the actual crime. You know why? Because he knew what we would do. And he had to actually say, hey, don't murder people. That's, that's a hard no from God. He had to actually tell us that. Because he knows what the sinful heart is. And so vengeance on our part, we will get it wrong every time. That's why he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And even in our worship, it is okay to take that to God when evil is attacking us. To say, God, I need you to deal with this. I'm putting my hope and my trust in you. And yes, there are these people in my world right now that are evil and bad things are happening. And I want you to deal with them. It's okay to do that. And so he says, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you 
rejoice and be glad in you. You see, it, the balance here, he's like, yes, let evildoers be dealt with, but let everybody who has a heart to seek God, let them rejoice and find you. He's not overtaken in bitterness. He's just being honest. His hope is still in God. He says, verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God. You see, the psalmist is expressing his hope that he has in God right now. His life isn't easy, nor is it devoid of valleys or challenges. So he expresses his trust that God will continue to be merciful and deliver us. He doesn't let go. And so we have to learn this as well, that whether mountaintop or valley, worship brings our faith to the moment. Are you in a good place right now? Awesome. Praise and thank God for it. And I mean that. If you look at your life right now, you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean devoid of you know, any problems. But if there's a time in your life and you look back again, man, that was a dark time. That was hard. That, I didn't know how I was going to get through. And you know, right now is way, way better than that. Thank God for it. Be like, God, you did that. If you are in that dark time right now, Pray and worship so that you can strengthen your heart to trust God's will in the darkness. You see, James 5.13 says it this way. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Both acts of worship, different postures of worship. The prayer is one of, uh, of dependence and struggle. Praise is one of celebration and joy. Yes, your worship should match the situation. This is how we find hope. We keep coming back to God. We worship him in good times and in bad times. We thank him and praise him in everything because he is the source of life and, and good. And to worship him reminds us that there is more to life than what we are experiencing right now. Worship keeps us focused. It's why we return to it every week in corporate worship. Now, I hope you're not only worshiping God on Sunday because that's not enough. But corporate worship is special. It's why we do come together to say in the great congregation, God is good. We worship the Lord Jesus. And so whether your life is following apart, is falling apart or coming together, we worship in hope. We worship knowing that God is in control. And we have the greatest example of this in Job 1, 20 and 21. It says, then Job, after everything has happened to him, it says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. He was in mourning. It was horrible. He was overcome and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He let it be known at the outset. My life is still about God. It was about God in the good times. Got to be about God in the bad times. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. And God, I, just, I thank you for everyone here. And God, I pray that you would in, in the, the coming days, this Christmas season, God, I pray that you, you empower our worship, God, that we would maybe get outside ourselves more than usual this year. That we would worship and thank you and acknowledge what you have done for us 
that we would speak of your great goodness, that we would speak of the great things you have done for us in the congregation, that we would be maybe more bold in sharing our testimony and what God has done for us in, in the mission field of our lives that you have placed us in. God, teach us to worship you more effectively so that we might know you and serve you better. That we might love you and love our neighbors like you. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray this together. Amen.